Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This podcast is brought to you by Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. They are on their feet in D.C., a standing ovation. They're waiting for Freddie to come out on the field and make that debut. April 3rd, 2004, RFK Stadium, Washington, D.C. It was the first game of the MLS season, The reigning champion, San Jose Earthquakes, with star Landon Donovan, faced off against DC United and 14-year-old sensation Freddie Adu. The old barn was sold out, and nearly 2 million people were watching on ABC, one of the largest TV audiences in league history. The stadium was alive, crackling with energy, as everyone waited for Freddie, the biggest story this league had ever seen. I was watching that day from San Antonio, where I was covering the NCAA Basketball Final Four, but my Sports Illustrated magazine story on Freddie, which took up part of the cover, was on newsstands around the country. Before the crowd could roar at Freddie's arrival, the media had created a deafening buzz around the team, drowning out any warning bells. At that point, almost nobody was asking the question, Is this too much publicity for a 14-year-old who has never played a professional game yet? Now we're going to see our first look at Mr. Freddie Adu. Welcome to American Prodigy. I'm Grant Wall. The thing about Freddie Mania in 2004 was that it wasn't just a publicity creation. Freddie really was magnetic. It was as though this photogenic, crowd-pleasing 14-year-old had been dropped out of the sky by the soccer gods to make soccer matter on an entirely new level in America. I couldn't get over how poised Freddie was in interviews, either with me or with some of the most famous talk show hosts in the country. Everyone, and I mean everyone, loved Freddie. At age 14, our next guest announced today that he has joined Major League Soccer's D.C. United team. This makes him the youngest professional U.S. athlete since the 1800s, Paul. There you go. Please say hello to Freddie Adu, everyone. As soon as Freddie stepped off the podium after announcing he was going pro, MLS had him on a whirlwind press tour. All day, Freddie, his mom, and his youth coach, Arnold Tarzi, went on a limousine trip around New York City to tell Freddie's story and pump up MLS while they were at it. We were whisked around. He did the David Letterman show. He did Fox and Friends. He did MTV's Total Request Live with Carson Daly, which was fun for Freddie at the time. Next came the commercials. You know about the Sierra Mist commercial with Pele. Taste one shockingly refreshing lemon lime. What are you doing? Okay. <laughs> but there was another one with Campbell's Soup. Time out, Mr. Freddy, you do? Even a 15-year-old soccer superstar has to stop to eat, Freddy. 
those commercials would play basically all the time. If you watched sports in 2004, you remember them. It wasn't every day that MLS had a star big enough to draw national mega brands like Pepsi and Campbell's Soup. Freddie's soon-to-be DC United teammate Ben Olsen saw them whenever he watched soccer on TV. The commercials back then, especially the soccer ones, and I know this because I was in one, there was only like two or three the entire year. So they just looped. So it was before the game, it was halftime, it was at the end of the game, it was throughout the week. And Freddie's was on all the time. Every time you turn soccer on, that was on. So it was just so much Freddie. Then the feature started. 60 Minutes, with one of America's biggest television audiences, devoted a primetime story to Freddie. I'm just having so much fun. So you get paid all that money to have fun. To have fun, yeah. Wow. I mean, couldn't ask for a better life. <laughs> it was a life so good, they decided to try and sell it. In addition to the normal sports stuff, lifestyle brands looked to market Freddie's youthful energy, and that needed a lot of coordinating. I probably talked to Freddie 20, 30 times a day, and that was also during the time where you had like AOL Messenger. That's Kerry Goldberg Trutanich, director of athlete marketing for Richard Motzkin's agency Sportsnet at the time, and now the president of Gold Standard Sports. She was assigned specifically to Freddie to manage the deluge of media. A lot of things with Freddie wasn't just the traditional sports interview. It was crossover with doing stuff with MTV. It could have been doing stuff with ESPN, the magazine. It was more of lifestyle PR and marketing versus just traditional marketing deals. The focus on PR and lifestyle meant it wasn't just Freddie's on-field career that had to be constantly managed. It was nearly every part of his life. I think a big reason why Rich had me around Freddie a lot was to shield him, make sure he still was able to be a teenager, make sure like we didn't have paparazzi everywhere. I won't forget we were in New York and we, he had a CRMS deal and we ordered pizza to the hotel room and Coke products came and the person who brought the food in wanted to take a picture with Freddie. And I was like, oh my God, I have to move Coke products out of this picture. Freddie didn't get it, but I knew like I had to make sure none of that was anywhere because you still didn't know where these pictures could end up. And I just remember like, oh my God, I can't believe these are the things I have to think about. So he's in compliance with his endorsements because a 14 year old isn't going to think like, oh, I can't have co-products in the picture. And to add to all that, of course, I wrote a lot about him. In 2003 and 2004, I wrote five Sports Illustrated magazine stories on Freddie and plenty more online. I followed him to Florida and Finland, to Washington, D.C. and L.A. And whenever I wrote about him, I tried to follow the strategy I'd used when writing about LeBron James. Speak to lots of knowledgeable people in the sport and share their excitement, but also temper expectations in case he doesn't make it. In Freddie's case, that meant mentioning the story of Ghana's Neil Lamptey, who'd been the MVP of the Under-17 World Championship in 1991. And it's a goal from deep inside his own half, Neil Lamptey. was born in Tama, the same city as Freddie. And wouldn't you believe it? The great Pelé said Lamptey reminded him of himself. Ghana failed to progress beyond the opening stage, but he was selected by Pele as the best player of the match. So, age 14, Lamptey left Ghana to seek his fortune in Europe. But Lamptey didn't end up becoming a superstar. Not all sports prodigies did. 
If I'm being honest, I was conflicted about my coverage of LeBron, but I'd be lying if I said the positive response to my LeBron story didn't influence the amount of coverage I gave Freddie a year later. That's one reason I'm back now, taking a closer look at Freddie Adu's story and partly my role in it. When SI put my LeBron story on the cover when he was just a high school junior, one of my first thoughts was, are we ruining this kid's life? At other times, though, I told myself he benefits from this too. And this is how sports work. If you're going to be a superstar, you have to learn how to deal with the media coverage. In LeBron's case, at 18 years old, he was already viewed as having made it with an $87 million Nike contract and an NBA rookie deal worth $12 million a year. But he still had to prove it in the NBA, just like Freddie needed to prove it in his first season. Except in 2004, Freddie was only 14. That spotlight shined on Freddie more brightly than it had on any sports star his age in history. And he didn't seem to mind. Through it all, Freddie smiled. I think I was just so young at the time that I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was cool. I just thought I was living my dream. I didn't know it was going to be at that magnitude, and I didn't know it was going to happen so early on in my life. A lot of people say, yeah, you know, yeah, maybe it might have been too much or whatever. I don't think I even saw it as that. I just, I just thought I was just taking everything in at the moment and just enjoying it because I had never experienced anything like that. And to me, it was just cool. With all the commercials, late night appearances, and media coverage, MLS and DC United were turning Freddie into a brand off the field. But there was one bit of on-field marketing that they couldn't secure, his uniform number. Freddie had been wearing number 11 for the under-17 national team and wanted that number at DC United. But it was taken. The number one overall pick the previous season, Aleko Eskandarian, already had the number for DC United. But Freddie being Freddie, management made a call. Remember the dinner I had with Eskandarian in England, the one that caused me to want to do this podcast? This was one of the wild stories he told me that night. I was with the Olympic team getting ready for Olympic qualifiers. And in the middle of practice, Mooch pulls me aside and he's like, Leko, um, you've kind of been summoned to go call the, your, your general manager for DC United. I'm like, what's going on? Am I, am I traded? And he's like, I don't want to look too deep into it, but that's that's what it sounds like. They said it was urgent. They took me out of practice, took me to the hotel. And all my teammates at the time were like, oh, dude, you got traded. Where are you going to go to? Every, everyone, like all this anticipation is building up. I go back to my hotel and it's my agent, Richard Motzkin, who's also Freddie's agent. And I talked to Dave Casper, Kevin Payne, Peter Novak, who had just, I don't think he had even officially been named head coach yet, but he was going to be the new head coach. And all these guys are like on a call and they're like, hey, we're calling you because we're going to pick Freddie Adu with the number one pick in, in the draft like next week. There's a huge marketing push behind it and he wants the number 11. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, so, you know, hopefully we could arrange something to give up number 11. Peter gets on the phone. He's like, listen, Aleko, I have big plans for you to be my striker. I want you to be my number nine. I'm like, no, I'm number 11. And we're on the phone for like a solid 10, 15 minutes. 
And they're like, look, this is this is really important. Nike's throwing a lot of money his way and this, and they have a whole marketing scheme. I'm like, guys, I'm like still in my practice gear. Give me a few minutes to think about it. Eskandarian, the son of the former New York Cosmos player Andronic Eskandarian, had only had the number at DC United for a single season, but it was his number. I took some time, I called my dad, I thought about it, I called back, and I said, guys, here's the deal. If you want Freddie to get number 11, then you'll have to trade me because I'm not giving it up. And they were like, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to trade you. Oh, maybe we could discuss some figures here to, to, you know, potentially throw some money your way. And I remember my exact words were, and, and I, it was literally verbatim from what my dad told me. I was like, I'm not a prostitute. I can't be bought. I went back to practice and my entire team is like, what's going on? Where'd you get traded to? And this and that. And I'm like, guys, you're not going to believe this. I'm not being traded. Freddie Adu wants my jersey number. And everyone's like, what? Who is this kid Freddie Adu? We, man, we hate Freddie Adu. <laughs> These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle and bustle all the time. And all of us could stand to hit that reset button now and again. And when you do, make sure you do it with a nice cold Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment straight from the Rockies. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. So next time you're able to sit at a baseball stadium, the sun's hot, and that vendor walks by, say, sir, I'd like a nice cold Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit that reset button, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Guys, getting older isn't always fun. But it could be. And Roman is here to help. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation for erectile dysfunction and hair loss, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet, so complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Prodigy now to get $15 off your first month. That's GetRoman.com slash Prodigy. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. Before he even met his teammates, Freddie and the relentless marketing push behind him had made some enemies in the soccer world. But even at 14, Freddie had a personality that smoothed everything over. Like the first time a dude met Eskandarian in person. I kind of see Freddie about to get on the bus, right? This is a huge bus, huge bus. So no one really doubles up. Everyone kind of has their own seat or their own row. This kid gets on the bus and out of every seat on the entire bus, he comes and he sits right next to me. And he's like, man, like you're a Leco, right? You're the one that wouldn't give me number 11. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm not going to give you number 11. I'm like, you have some nerve uh, asking for it. And he's like, nah, it's cool, man. It's cool. I guess I'll take number nine. And he sat next to me and we just talked for 20 minutes. And I was just blown away by how comfortable he was already, how confident he was. Eskandarian would eventually become one of Adu's best friends. But it wouldn't be the last time Freddie's brand made a negative impression before he had the chance to introduce himself. Yet, the hype train rolled on. In early spring, it was finally time to play soccer. 
Amelia Dew dropped her son off at his first DC United practice, where it was finally time for the team to meet Freddie. U.S. Under-17 coach John Ellinger thinks it might have gone something like this. Knowing Freddie, he says, hey, guys, you know, I'm Freddie, and Freddie, everybody knows who you are. You don't have to introduce yourself to the locker room. The DC United players might have known Freddie from the under-17 world championship or from the press and commercials he'd done. But now they learned that the media orbiting Freddie would soon crash into them too. Peter Novak, the new DC United head coach, thought he had a handle on it. I started my professional career with 15 years old. So I was the youngest player to start the professional football in Poland in the history of Polish football. So I know what, what maybe that's how it's going to be. Of course, the media is different with Freddie. As a prodigy himself, Novak had an idea of what bringing Freddie into the locker room might be like. But some teammates were blindsided by the press, like defender Mike Pecky. I couldn't get to my locker because of the amount of press that was there. I, it was tough for me to get to the field because walking around cameras and, and, and people. What I remember that first day is his smile and the, and the press coverage, which was unreal. Eventually, Freddie's teammates got to spend time with him without any media around. Most treated him with kindness, like a little brother who got to play with the older kids. Several held him to higher standards. Winger Ernie Stewart, who'd played in three World Cups for the U.S., earned the nickname The Judge from his teammates for his level-headed opinions. And he saw Adu as a kid who just needed to learn the ropes. When Freddie came, I was actually pretty hard on him, not from you know him being young or anything like that, but just uh, telling him what he needed to do to become a professional soccer player and that, that there was more involved to what was going on at that time. But it's hard to know how to be a pro when you've never even played varsity. You now have never been a freshman in high school You've never had to, like, earn a varsity spot. You've never been, like, beaten up in the hallways or slammed into a locker. You've never been a freshman in college where you have upperclassmen that kind of do their initiation and make you pay your dues. So he never experienced any of that, to my knowledge. Eskandarian knew from his own experience. And he knew that in the pros, there was a rookie code, a code that Freddie couldn't fathom at first. At a pro level, when you're a rookie, there's already a code that you are aware of. Cleaning up, picking up bags, moving goals, like all the things that are endearing to veteran players that you're like, okay, this kid is wanting to earn his stripes. Freddie was the opposite where, and he would tell me, cause it'd be like, all right, we gotta back up the balls. Freddie, go get the balls. And he'd be like, no. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> what do you mean no? And he was just like, no, I'm not gonna, like, why do I have to get the balls? Like you guys are picking on me. And as a result, guys would be like, okay, you're not gonna listen to me. You're not gonna try to earn my respect. Next time you get the ball, you'll earn my respect. And they, and they would go at him and, you know, take him out or whatever it was. But he would, he, Freddie, to his credit, you know, wrote it out pretty well. And it wasn't just his teammates whom Freddie had to convince, it was also his coach, Peter Novak, who'd been one of the best players in MLS history. I always opened the first session with the game. The captains was uh, Ryan Nelson and Ernie just pick, pick up two, two teams and then we play. And at the end, I said, okay, I, I'm going to play too. And then Freddie was on the opposite side. So um, he took the ball from me and I ran behind him and I tackled him so hard. He landed in the, it was still snow in DC. He landed so hard and he was like, he looked at me like, what's wrong with you? You know, like how, this is the first time 
the first day of training, he's, you know, everywhere from Letterman, this, that. And all of a sudden, you know, the coach is going to tackle him and he landed, uh, you know, in the snow. And he looked, I don't forget this look for him. Like, are you serious, coach? Novak was totally serious. The way he saw it, he hadn't been treated any differently when he was the youngest pro in Poland. So why should Freddie receive special treatment here? The idea was not to single out him as a different one. I always look at the team as a team, 20-something members plus my staff and the club officials. So this is the team that's working together on the success. And if you will single out one player, then of course you're going to create some tension within the other players or the reserves, or why him, why not me, and this and that. Novak's tackle into a snowbank reflected how a few of the players felt, too. They saw it as a signal to go hard at Freddie. Midfielder Ben Olsen wasn't afraid to take his shot. I took one lick at him pretty early, too. I think everybody got one on him as Freddie got a lot of attention. And was there something, un, you know, uh, subconsciously that you wanted to give him a little shot every now and then for making that type of money and getting that type of press while we were playing and, and we've been in this league for a while and we've built this league or helped build this league. I don't know, maybe. At the same time, Freddie's teammates and even opponents realized that the increased attention he brought to the league could be good for them too. Even a star like Landon Donovan respected the leverage that Adu had brought to his negotiations with MLS. All of us would think at that time, well, we get into these, these negotiations and these clubs or the league tells us, well, we can only pay this much because of this, 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 and I'm all of a sudden you have a 15-year-old kid making half a million dollars. And so it was a little eye-opening because you'd say, okay, well, it's not that you couldn't do it. You just didn't want to. MLS paid up for Freddie and promoted him relentlessly, unlike any player before. But why? Why? Because the league needed a superstar now. Unlike the MLS of today, which has 26 teams, growing interest, and ever-expanding resources, the MLS Freddie came into was a league fighting to be solvent. 2004 Deputy Commissioner Ivan Gazidis knew this all too well. MLS had been through a rough period a couple of years before, a very rough period. But you have to remember, this time, MLS was not a league that was signing David Beckham. The league had contracted just two years earlier, folding the Tampa Bay and Miami franchises. That gave MLS a total of just 10 teams, the majority of which were in the hands of one billionaire, Phil Anschutz. Philip Anschutz owned the league. When this league was about to collapse, and piece by piece, he was going to build it back up. Eric Winalda, who played in three World Cups for the U.S., was broadcasting games for ESPN in those days. He never talks to the, the press. But he was walking through a hotel and somebody from the media tried to ask a question. And they said, Mr. Anschutz, Mr. Anschutz. And he didn't respond. They said, how long can you sustain this? I mean, it, you know, the, the, the league is clearly losing money and, and now it's all on you. How, how, how long is this sustainable? And he turned around, looked right at the guy and said, somebody told me 140 years. But Anschutz, who owned DC United, didn't want to continue owning so many teams forever. So he supplied the money, along with league co-founders and NFL team owners Lamar Hunt and Bob Kraft, to afford MLS the time it needed to find new owners and increase relevance on the field with World Cup stars like Landon Donovan. They needed all the help they could get, and the league was still in very 
on steady ground. So anything that would provide a boost was welcome, not only by the owners, but by us, fans, everywhere. That was worth it. Enter Freddie Adu, a hyper-talented one-man opportunity to bring local, national, and global eyes onto your struggling league. MLS had done everything they could to get him. And now that he was theirs, the league intended to get its money's worth promoting him. So they picked Freddie Adu and, and turned him into a megastar overnight. Thomas Rongen brought Freddie to the Under-20 World Cup as a 14-year-old. I'm sure they used all of that in their negotiations with sponsors and TV, right? But Freddie Adu gave, gave the league a, uh, a boost, no doubt. MLS's efforts had made Freddie a phenomenon. As DC United rolled through preseason, it became apparent just how effective the media blitz had been in creating Freddie mania. His teammates, like Eskandarian, got caught in the wave. It was like we were the Beatles, you know, like everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. Fans were flocking to the hotel, in the lobby, when we were out, you know, at the stadiums, or on the bus, like everywhere was mayhem and every game was packed. Freddie fans were rabid and Coach Novak had to take special measures at away games, even during the preseason, to ensure their teen idol could get enough sleep before matches. Freddie was always registering in a hotel under the different names. Ray Trafari was great and was he was fantastic to organize this thing because he always switched, uh, you know, the numbers of the rooms because the fans were calling different players to find out if it's Freddie or not. Freddie's DC United teammates found themselves being sideshows in the Adu media circus. Being professionals in a little-watched American sports league had previously let them live their lives unbothered by crazy fans and paparazzi. But not now. Not with Freddie around. It was just a media circus, man. It was everything. Everywhere we went, everything we did, there was always so much media around. And I don't know how, you know, some of these guys took it, but to me, it just seemed normal. I just thought that was what it was being a professional. But then as you get older, you realize a lot of things. You realize that was not normal. That was that was new. That was a new experience for them as well. Normal for Freddie involved a nonstop stream of interviews, media sessions, and autograph signings. Media members like Rob Stone knew they were mainly on Freddie duty before the matches even happened. Everywhere you went, every outlet just wanted to talk to Freddie, just wanted a piece of this poor kid. Anything. Give me a smile. Give me a picture. Give me a five-second quote. The PR staff knew that. The MLS league staff knew that. And they had to push that. And as a desperate league, MLS had to push every button they could find, including the Hollywood button. The game of their lives. It was the greatest team in any sport I have ever seen. Anschutz, the MLS billionaire bankroller, the owner of six teams, just so happened to also own a Hollywood movie studio. And he just so happened to be financing a film called The Game of Their Lives, about the 1950 U.S. World Cup team that beat England in one of the greatest upsets in international soccer history. There was no way he'd release a movie promoting U.S. soccer without his shiny new U.S. soccer star. As a consultant on the film, Eric Winalda helped figure out how to shoehorn Freddie into the movie. David Anspaugh, the director of Rudy and Hoosiers, came to me and we sat down and he said, okay, 
I don't know what to do. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, who's Freddie Adu? And how do I get him in the movie? And by the way, I'm not sure that England had any black guys on their team. So now what do we do? It wasn't Freddie's fault. It was just, this is the future of the sport. This boy, how do we somehow include him in this movie, which had nothing to do with what was going on in America today? The film flopped, losing almost $13 million, but they squeezed Freddie in. He's even in the trailer. It's an odd fit. There are a few scenes of Freddie playing modern-day soccer interspersed with the 1950s reenactments. It definitely feels strange, almost as if he's being forced into the 1950 World Cup lineup. Back in D.C., Freddie was trying to squeeze himself into his own lineup. But who would make the starting 11 for Freddie's first MLS game was a closely guarded secret. Freddie had started for United in preseason games, but Peter Novak hadn't announced if he'd be a starter or even play in the team's first regular season game. Assuming Freddie would get the nod, MLS had scheduled a blockbuster opener. The defending champion San Jose Earthquakes, led by Landon Donovan, against DC United and 14-year-old phenom Freddie. The league expected a huge audience after they'd spent the winter hyping Freddie, but neither the league nor media members like Rob Stone knew if he'd even be on the field. MLS needed to deliver to, to ABC and ESPN and, and give them what they wanted. Hey, Peter Novak, you got to play the kid. Like the kid has got to get on the field. And no one has ever said to me that that conversation took place, but I'm damn sure, 100% positive, that large leading people in Major League Soccer said, you're playing the kid this day on ABC because we have just put too much towards it. Kevin Payne, who ran DC United, remembers a call just like that. I got a phone call from a senior executive at the league office. I'm not going to say who it was the night before saying this game's on national television. How can Peter not start Freddie? And I said, I'm never going to tell anybody that you made this phone call to me because it's wildly inappropriate and it's the wrong thing. We're not worried about what Freddie accomplishes this weekend, but we're trying to think about what can he accomplish in his career. Novak hadn't said a word about Freddie starting or not starting, not even in an off-the-record meeting with ABC broadcasters the day before, as is usual for a nationally televised game. He was playing poker with MLS and with the media. Really, I said there's going to be a 10 players and one goalkeeper. If you're going to announce that he will not play, the whole thing will start before the game. If you announce that he will play, this thing is going to be, is going to blow. So I rather said, you know, that was always my line, 10 players and one goalkeeper. Freddie had to wait, like the rest of us. I was ready to, I was excited, but we didn't know. We weren't going to find out anything until we got there, you know, to the stadium, the starting lineup and whatnot. Only one person knew when Freddie would take the field, and he still wasn't speaking. So Rob Stone did his best on the sidelines to read the tea leaves. I was sideline reporter that day. Hell yeah, I was working at DC United bench all day and listening in hard onto Peter and his staff, watching players warm up, looking at the reaction of the guy who's on the bench, who's designated to yell down to the trainer who's warming up the guys, what was going and what number jersey was being pulled out, potentially the bag, because that player's coming in. So my eyes and ears 
were almost solely on Freddie Adu from the moment I got to the stadium because that's all we cared about. It was only two hours before kickoff when Novak entered the locker room and told the players who was starting and who wasn't. Basically, I wait until two hours before the game when we meet. In that time, two hours, you don't have much time to think about. I believed in that time, Aleko and Jaime deserve to start a game and then, you know, utilize Freddie as a free player. Which meant Freddie was not going to start. I hated it. I wasn't happy. I wanted to start. I really did because it was such anticipation, the buildup. It was just huge, you know, pumped up to, to basically show everybody that was watching what I could do. Not getting a chance to start just kind of ah, took the air out of me a little bit. Trevor Moad, Freddie's mental conditioning coach, was closer to a do than just about anybody. And he thought Novak had misinterpreted an implicit deal between MLS and their teen prodigy. Once you commit to this decision, you're, you're committed and the kid has to play. Peter and those guys were under so much pressure not to give him anything. Everything was like, if, if he played well enough, he's got to earn these minutes. When that's not the deal the league made, in my opinion, with Sierra Miss and with Nike and with all the different types of things. Freddie wasn't happy, but he had to prepare for a game that was now less than two hours away. It was still the first match of his professional career at 14 years old, and he could still come on as a sub. When the game started, Freddie watched from the bench. There was a nervous buzz throughout the stands during the game, despite DC United holding a 2-1 lead at the half. The fans hadn't come to see just any game. They wanted to see an American prodigy. And around the 60th minute, the buzz began to get louder. Freddie had taken off his warm-ups and was getting ready to sub in. Escondera comes to the sideline. He already scored his goal. And now the Freddie Adu era officially begins. Here's Freddie. As Freddie trotted onto the field, RFK Stadium erupted. Every time Adu touched the ball, the crowd stood from its seats. Play back. Here's Freddie. Flag it long. Come on, go. Hook cross. And it's deflected out. Earthquake's defender, Jeff Agus, could feel the buzz. As he got the ball, you could feel the, the crowd was, there was more excitement. People were standing up. I mean, it was like, what is going to happen here? It was the unknown. It was the, the hope of this 14-year-old kid. Then Agus became part of the Freddie Show. Freddie had the ball, made some moves, and was one-on-one -on -one with a 35-year-old defender. Extreme youth versus extreme experience. Agus had won five MLS championships, had played in two World Cups. He'd been posterized by Winalda for the winning goal in the very first MLS game in history. Now, in another huge game for the league, the last thing Agus wanted was to be posterized again, let alone by a 14-year-old. Here is Freddie, 2v2. On the dribble, there he goes. I was never going to get to the ball first. So I, I backed off him and gave him a couple yards. And I remember very vividly in my mind this play that I'd seen a couple days before and he was going to go to his left. I showed him to the right and he faked to go to the right and went to the left. I took one step right before he did and I cut off his path and he went right into the back of me. I was able to win the ball. And he's knocked down. 
He will not get the call. It was very close. Had, I, had it been a moment later, I could, it was probably going to be a foul. The referee, Kevin Stotts, get up, come on. Get up, welcome to professional soccer. Yeah. Of course, I'm an offensive player. I thought it was a penalty, yes, but I fondly remember that as my welcome to the league moment right there. DC United would go on to win the game. DC United get a two-to-one victory when we come. MLS and ABC would get their record-breaking TV audience. And 2004 was headed toward a season unlike anything American soccer had ever seen. But Freddie still needed to prove that he could live up to the hype on the field. We said, a 14-year-old boy, you are the face of DC United. You are the face of the MLS. You are the face of U.S. soccer. It is up to you to make us relevant to the world and lift us up from soccer mediocrity to global football elite. That's next time on American Prodigy. This Blue Wire podcast was hosted, reported, and co-written by me, Grant Wall. Harry Swartout produced and co-wrote the show. Reed Redmond and Jeffrey Besoy provided production assistance. Brian Decker scored the podcast and engineered the sound. John Yales and Peter Moses executive produced the show. Special thanks to Don Giller for helping us track down the Letterman interview. If you liked American Prodigy, subscribe and give us a rating and a review. It helps the podcast get to more people. Or you can go all 2004 on us and simply tell a friend. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13.